It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Citation Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition. For all you kids out there, the official podcast of your baseball prospectus Mets local site. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me once again this week is Jarrett Seidler. Jarrett, the Mets went 0 6 this week. Yeah, we were at the game last night. We were? Saturday night, if you're yeah. listening to this at some other time. Um, it was. Uh, I've been in a lot of like just meaningless dead Mets games, and this was like a September twentieth yeah. game against the Marlins with both teams like thirty games out. Like this, the crowd had no life. The team had no life. There was just like no juice in the ballpark. You know. And you think you know a Saturday night. May Ty- game. You know, they get the tying and go-ahead runs on base yeah. in the eighth inning, and the crowd starts on the wave. <laughs> like, it was one of those. It is interesting to just see sort of how the... Obviously, they've had a bad stretch, but just how quickly sort of the life's gone out of the season since that hot start. Like, that we, like everyone was just waiting for the other shoe to drop. <sighs> And again, they're only they're game and a half out of the division. Yeah, they're tied. They're essentially tied for the wild card spots. It's not like and they're clearly they're going dead. in the wrong direction is the main problem, right? You know, I'm just watching on my television screen the new day Titus worldwide no way Jose and Bobby Roode do like the no way Jose conga dance. Quality programming. I'm not watching the pay-per-view. I mean, instead... I, I could have went to the pay-per-view. Yeah. It's half hour away from my house. <laughs> instead of you recording episode 107 for all you kids out there. Um, in the first half of the show, we're going to talk a little bit about the last week of Mets baseball, specifically about Jacob deGrom's hyper-extended elbow um, and the start he will not be making on Monday and everything around that. We are holding a lot of the Mets stuff for the second segment of the show. Yes, the final edition of this week in Matt Harvey with our good friend David Roth from Deadspin. And then Which will the surely stay entirely on topic about the Mets. We too. recorded it, didn't. Uh, and the third <laughs> half of the show will answer your correspondence and do the usual third half stuff. But yeah, so Jacob deGrom pitching, so I guess was the bellwether for the week 
pitched for dominant shutout innings against the Braves. We were G-chatting about how good he looked. And then uh, we didn't know it was in the bottom of the third. He hyper-extended his elbow on a swing, went out for the fourth because it's the Mets, and then took himself out of the game. And then they proceeded to keep him on the roster for four days, burn every reasonable starting option to replace him, and then put him on the DL and decide he's going to miss two turns. Or a turn and a half or whatever. Um, Which is going to lead to the Major League debut. Tomorrow night of P.J. Conlon. Okay, so, like, I kind of, actually, compared to you, I like P.J. Conlon a lot. I mean, um, he's fine. I threed him last year in Double A. I floored him. I uh, think he's too much. I think he's got a good chance to be a decent lefty out of the pen. Yeah, I don't think, not even really a four, but okay. Um, or perhaps a back end starter. Uh, yeah, fine, sure. I could see him being like left-handed Paul Seawald. All right. Um, who I also thought was better than you thought he was. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I like the I like the command and change up guys maybe a little more than I should. Sure. Um, but you know, they could have held Oswalt back. He pitched uh, Friday night, I think, or something. Yeah, for the. Some combo pitched very poorly, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, um, they have the 40-man spot for Conlon. They were probably going to protect him after the season anyway. Sure. He's not a bad guy to get into the up-and-down mix. Um, he might eventually be the second lefty in the pen later in the season. They've toyed with moving him into the bullpen. Um, you know, I wrote his TA. You know, it's basically Jason Vargas, and... <laughs> 30% of these guys have Jason Vargas's career, and the other 70% don't. <laughs> Guess we might as well find out which it's going to be. I'd have my All suspicions. Right. All right. Um, it's a nice story. He's from Belfast, Northern Ireland. His sure. family moved to California when he was a kid because of the troubles. Um, he basically then at that point became a California surfer dude. He was a nice find in the 13th round of the draft. Sure, sure. Um, you know, he pitched very, he's pitched very well everywhere except for AAA. You know, it, it's also kind of nice to promote these guys. Yes, as we say, but the here's the problem. Well. We said that about an awful lot of guys over the last couple of years. And if you have to use all of them, it says something about your roster but construction. You'd rather give this guy a shot than, you know... I don't even know. Vance Worley. Yeah, Vance Worley. You know, there you go. I was going to say AJ Griffin, but they already caught him. Sure, sure. I mean, I think the bigger issue is just, you know, this team is going to be basically unwatchable if Jacob deGrom actually has anything substantially wrong with him, which God knows if he actually does, because it's the mess. And the other other problem is, you know, come up with a fucking plan and stick with (laughs) it. Yeah. Like, it's not that hard. Like, you know, if, if you want to give Jacob DeGrom some extra rest, if you think there's any chance you want to give Jacob DeGrom some extra rest, you can push Corey Oswald back two days. Yeah. You know, you could have called Corey Oswald up in the Matt Harvey spot. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know why Hansel Robles is back in the major leagues. Do you know why Hansel Robles is back in the major leagues? I don't know. It was his turn on the shuttle. 
he hadn't pitched recently and they needed a fresh arm. Those are the usual reasons. I don't actually know if that's true. I haven't been paying particularly close attention to Vegas bullpen usage. I mean, he he went down to Vegas and he gave up some home runs and got strikeouts and, you know, his hot robles. Yeah. Um, they're basically using him as the closer in Vegas, so he's not even stretched out. Uh, uh, one of the other problems is it's Vegas, so nobody's actually pitching well. Right. Uh, Kevin McGowan's probably the closest thing to pitching well out of somebody that's, you know, they're not calling up Tim Peterson. I'm sorry. sorry. It's fine. I've seen a lot of Tim Peterson. They probably shouldn't call up Tim Peterson. Yeah, it's just, this is not a particularly fun team to watch right now. Yeah, you know. I I watched some of the game today. I also had errands to do that, you know. If it was if it was a more if it was a more fun team to watch on a Noah Syndergaard Sunday start, I would have went food shopping after the game. Yeah. It was a very Sunday lineup, too, so... Right, it was just like... Eh, whatever. Yeah, you look at... I'm now looking at the Vegas roster, and... There ain't a lot here, folks. Gavin Shikini is doing his empty 300 trick again. Tom Smith isn't even hitting that well. You know, Phil Evans isn't hitting that well. Ty Kelly's hitting pretty well. Woohoo. <laughs> um, you know, the pitching is a complete disaster. Vegas' team ERA is 6.89. Not nice. Yeah. Uh, and their team OPS is only 775, so it's not the, it's not entirely the park. Um, you know, Jamie Callahan's getting eaten alive there. Uh, Marcos Molina got eaten alive there so bad they demoted him back. Um, Kyle Regnault's getting eaten alive there, and Matt Perk's getting eaten alive there. Oswald's pitched like crap there. Collins pitched like crap there. Chris Flexen's pitching well. Chris Flexen would have been a candidate for the start had they, you know, paid attention to these sorts of things. Michael Conforto appears to have lost a job. Yeah, you know, it's the Mets, so. You know, they just lost faith in Michael Conforto again. Um, they haven't lost faith in Adrian Gonzalez. They haven't lost faith in Jay Bruce, who isn't really hitting. They haven't lost faith in Jose Lobaton, who's <laughs> not hitting, defending, or doing anything. Um, they haven't lost faith in a bunch of pitchers that aren't pitching well, but Michael Conforto. They haven't lost faith in Jose Reyes, who couldn't hit water if he fell out of boat, fell off a boat. 
But, you know, Michael Conforto's stable to the bench now, so that's a thing. Again, for like the fifth time in four seasons. Yeah. And I'm sure that's not permanent. Sure, sure. Um, there are things I really like about this manager. He has absolutely no fucking idea how to manage an NL lineup in game. None. It wasn't too pretty last relievers, night. Relievers keep batting for themselves. Um, starter, you know, he's missing double switches. Uh, he's just, you know, and this is a guy, this is a career AL pitching coach. This is what happens when you put a career AL pitching coach as a manager. And don't give him a super experienced bench coach. Um, this was something we mentioned as a potential pitfall when he was hired. And again, this is something he will probably improve at. Yeah, I don't think it's really like actively costing them games at the moment for the most part either. No, but it will. Yeah. Um, you know, he seems unwilling to hit for his two absolutely awful catchers unless it's the ninth inning, which means he's scared about losing the backup catcher to injury, which is like, you know, it's just crippling. Yeah. Especially in this match. If you have two awful catchers and you're not willing to hit for them, it's crippling as, as your team. And if it's that crippling and you need a third catcher up, you've got to get Phil Evans up. Sure. Um, and again, these are you know relatively minor in comparison to the bigger problems, which is they can't hit and they can't pitch. <laughs> Small, little things like that, yeah. And there's nothing. There's no help on the way here. Nope. That's that's the point I was making. They have one potential impact 2018 impact player in the minors. One. It's Peter Alonso. Mm-hmm. And they don't seem real interested in Peter Alonso yet. That could change in five minutes. It could. See, here's my thing with Peter Alonso. I think as with Reese Hoskins and as with A.J. Reed and as with, like, all players of this profile, I think we'll be able to make a pretty educated guess within, like, I don't know, six weeks whether the guy's going to be any good or not. Mm-hmm. And they've shown no... They've shown the inclination to, like, pull the plug on these guys pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So why not just call them up and see whether they can hit? Yes, Adrian Gonzalez... Uh... He's got to work his way out of it. He's a veteran, Jared. Right. You know, you call him up on May 6th, and you probably have your answer by the end of June. And then, you know, you can make a decision about Dom Smith. You can make a decision about whether Jay Bruce needs to play first or whether you need to hand him over Conforto first base glove. You can make a decision whether, you know, Wilmer Flores is your first baseman at that point. The earlier you do this, the more it opens up. You can start targeting trade targets by that point. If you decide to do it on July 1st, by the time you've figured it out, it's almost the end of the season and you don't have the ability to give anybody else a run there. And, you know, based, you know, he's hitting 370 with power and walks in double A in Bingo, which is kind of a crappy place to hit and kind of a crappy league to hit. So, based on the statistical profile, it's time for him to be in the big leagues. And he's 23 in a college pick, so it's not like, you know, it's not a rush job to call him up right now. Sure. It's really not. 
And it's not like sending him to Vegas for two months is going to tell you anything. Because, you know, it's only going to potentially tell you bad things. You don't really have playing time for him in Vegas right now anyway, so. Right, unless you're giving up on Dom Smith. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's probably time to call Peter Alonzo up, and that's not going to happen. And, you know, I'm not even convinced he's going to be that great. I just think he's probably better than what they have. Of course, the big news of the week after another disastrous bullpen appearance. The Mets DFA'd Matt Harvey. And to talk about that, we'll bring on our good friend from Deadspin, David Roth. And now, the final edition of This Week in Matt Harvey. Oh, no, it isn't. We're going to have to discuss where he gets traded or He's not going to get traded, Jared. He died. I'm trying to get some sort of, like, solemnity here. It's like, oh, this won't be the last one. This is, uh, we're calling it the series finale, though. And there's only one. you got to bring back the big guest stars for the series finale. And, of course, we have, from Deadspin, the man you best know, dressed in tartan, chewing old bubblegum, David <laughs> Roth. <laughs> the Kelsey Grammer of the uh, This Week in Matt Harvey series. It's exciting. It is. So Matt Harvey is what, 28? 29. I, I lost you there, Jared. 27. I'm sorry, say again? He's like definitely going to be a non-roster invite in like eight years. <laughs> Still? Yeah. I mean, so how long did like Ben Sheets and Rich Harden keep getting contracts after no, it I'm, went I'm bad for them? No, I'm saying he's going to end up back with the Mets at some point. Oh, now. Oh, that's spicy. I don't want to skip ahead too far in the podcast, <laughs> but I'm just going to go ahead and bring it up. Long Island Ducks. Yes or no? <laughs> I mean, K-Rod's there now, which is... Yeah. Mm. It is what? also, like, as foretold by prophecy. Like, that was always coming. What's his relationship with Wally Backman? Because, I mean, New Britain's much closer to his home. It's true. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a good poll. I feel like... I mean, it's weird. Like, I'm... I'm not going to say that I don't think he'll ever play in the Atlantic League. I do feel like a, a lot of things are going to have to happen for that to to be a reality. Right, the thing is, like, these guys just keep getting either, like, the one-year $5 million with incentive contracts or the priority NRIs because they were once good. Yeah. I mean, th- to go to the Atlantic League, it's also, like, you'd have to have really... Like, is this, like... Uh, I guess it is basically like a Scott Casimir level, like bottoming out where like, he's basically not employable as a major league pitcher right now. So he has to do it. So here's another aspect of that. Like the second he got DFA'd, there were like 18 teams that leaked. Like we don't want this fucking guy within 20 feet of our clubhouse. Yeah. I mean, that's the other, there's like a real sense, I think within the game He's just, like, a toxic teammate. I was surprised. I mean, like, Alderson and Callaway and Island all said the right things after the... Like, I was actually kind of struck by it. I mean, obviously, I was... Of course, I was fucking sad about it, because it's like... I thought he was the coolest thing in the world, like, you know, five years ago. But the... They talked about him like he was, like... Like a vulnerable dude and, like, an honest guy that everybody kind of liked. And that just... 
I mean, it's what you say is like a rare instance of the Mets actually saying something nice. Like, I'm sure that like Monday morning, whatever, the like, back page right, of the, post, like, the post is going to have just Jeff will get on yeah. the horn, be like, yeah, the, you know, uh, gonorrhea, you know, what people don't know about that <laughs> front office source said. But yeah, the <laughs> you know, the triggering legal action bleeding that one time. <laughs> yeah. Someone was one of you guys that was talking about how like his uh, decline actually tracks really well to the time that he had like a, a penis. That was, in that was me. Yeah. That yeah. Was me. I'm um, not sure that that's, uh, you know, none of us here are medical professionals. I had somebody reach out to me privately and say that it's not entirely impossible that they were related vascular issues. But again, yeah, I'm not a medical. What uh, were the, what were the related issues? Well, that like his penis issue might have been like a vascular issue, yeah, and the, the thoracic yeah. syndrome is definitely a vascular. Oh issue. yeah, that's true actually. Huh. Yeah, so they could have theoretically been like that is a theoretical complication of thoracic outlet syndrome theoretically. So it's not like totally out of the question. I mean, the other guy that had something similar happen was Mike Miner, but I guess he was like favoring his dick area and blood <laughs> his shoulder while doing it. Like tried to Cascade ramp up effect, the yeah. I was gonna say, yeah. whom, whom among us has not? <laughs> Is this where we talked about Yadier Molina? Oh God, I saw that. I watched the video this morning, and I really wish I hadn't. The worst part of it is not the video; it's the text description. Hold on, I'll pull it up. Well, it's uh, all—it's like a deep hematoma. Uh... I. Could it possibly be worse than the video, Jared? You've seen the video. I mean, this is like the, is this like the Kazmatsui yeah. anal fissures all over again? Yes, yeah, it is. Actually, it is like one of those things where like the, Pel- the words are so bad. <laughs> Pelvic injury with traumatic hematoma. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like. I mean, in English, I doctor. Listen, I played enough sports to know that like wearing a cup is uncomfortable. But if dudes are throwing 100 miles an hour in the general direction uh, of my junk, yeah. I'm wearing a goddamn cop. <laughs> no, that's, uh, to me, like, I, whatever. I would not um, catch Jordan Hicks pitches without, like, I would it, it, I would just be inside of a giant <laughs> cup, and I would stick my glove out of a hole in it, and I would look through. No, I actually have a design in mind. I'd be happy to send you guys the specs later if you'd like to see them. Uh, but yeah, that's it's completely the worst case scenario in every possible way. I, I mean, if I were him, I would just not catch again. That would solve a rather significant like uh, stacking Foster problem. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Got, is Kelly got a, really that good? Well, they don't just have Kelly; they have the other guy too. Can it serve? I don't remember. Yeah, Brent. Uh, Andrew Brandon. Na- Brandon's a Nationals reliever. Yeah, it's like Andrew Knitzer. Yeah. And both of the, I mean, I know that, like, he's got years remaining on his contract, and he's still good. I just sort of feel like this is like a thing where you just take the hint, right? Like, I don't know how. I mean, I guess this is not this. That's why I'm not a baseball player because there's all these dudes that get like drilled in the head by a line drive, and they're like, well, you know, like that. That's a thing that happens, and it's like if that was a thing that happened at my workplace and it happened to me. I would be like, well, I'm going to do something else now. Like, so I, almost, I almost got killed by whatever uh, T. Oscar Hernandez hitting a baseball off my head at 110 miles an hour. His problem 
which is not unusual for catchers in their mid-30s, is, like, all of his value is tied up in defense and ability to play catcher. Like, if he has to move to, like, first base or right yeah. field or somewhere, he's just, like, done as a player. And they have signed through 2020 at $20 million a year. Yeesh. So, that well, contract's not being traded. No. The Cardinals kind of low-key backed themselves into a bunch of crappy contracts, didn't they? I saw today uh, Matt Carpenter was waived in one of my fantasy leagues. Yeah. Um, Colton Wong has guaranteed money. That's a lot of Yeah, guys. I mean, Ted Zirko is making a bunch of money so to basically be their sixth infielder. Dexter Fowler looks like it's going bad. It's weird to think of them as being uh, in trouble that way. Because it's like, I'm, Matheny seems like a yokel to me, but I still think of their front office as successfully, uh, magically turning Ruben Tejadas into Elvis Andrews's or whatever. But maybe not. Well, I mean, is there... We could get to a philosophical discussion about the difference between Ruben Tejadas and Elvis Andrews. Well, that's for hour two of the appearance. <laughs> the, yeah. So you guys would know this better than me. Is there any indication? I mean, I feel like somebody might take a flyer on Harvey this year. Do you think he's going to pitch for another major league team this season? There so, has been exactly yeah. one team that leaked that they're really interested in him. Exactly the team everybody thought would be really interested in him. The Texas Rangers. Yeah. They they have already, and they desperately need starting yeah. pitching. Um, I mean, they Dan Worthen went on the record with T.R. Sullivan to talk about how great a relationship he has with Harvey. And how Which he you don't do as the up. assistant pitching coach unless you got to right. go ahead from the front office. Yeah. And that's also like a distinctly John Daniels kind of move. And, I mean, I guess if it doesn't cost you anything, it's some. I mean, they are in a position where they would kind of need that, but... Could the Mets get Jerickson Profar for him just to make this <laughs> the saddest possible transaction? Well, Jerickson Profar is actually playing because like, I know every- I think they're I starting know. shortstop. Is, is that gonna? That's not gonna continue is indefinitely, it- though, right? Is Andrews on like the sixty-day DL or something? Or he had a pretty yeah, serious injury. Whether well, I guess it could always be worse than being the Mets. They've been so lousy this weekend that i have this week like way, really yeah this whole week but i mean just like this was the the most i was concentrating on watching them and this is like the earliest in the season that i've wanted to take a break in a long while you weren't watching the uh, braves completely thump them while you were on vacation david <laughs> <laughs> i saw the uh i saw the scores on my phone and was kind of <laughs> quietly glad that i wasn't here i was there was one Bit. I, it was wonderful to not be as online as usual, and I think it did me a lot of good, but it was also weird to like experience all the usual annoying Mets things, but in an even more abstracted way, where it was like, no word on Cespedes today, and I was like, I don't even know what they'd be giving word about. What the hell? Like, what's happening here? <laughs> and I, it's mean, like, I guess it was fine until it wasn't, but... And the crazy thing is, they're only a game and a half out of the division. They're tied in the loss column for the two wild card spots. Like, they're not, like, a hopeless team. It just feels like they're a hopeless yeah. team. They've been, they were just looked so lifeless. And I, I mean, I still think they're, I mean, they're not obviously, like, a team that is 12 and 2 with good reason. But, like, I certainly think they're better than this. I was encouraged to see Matt's pitch well. Like, it's just, the 
the problems that were there at the beginning of the year are still there. And there's so many, it's like, this is like usually where they get later in the season where there's like just three or four total dead spots in the lineup. And at this point, it's like more than the bottom third of the lineup. Like there's just like stuff that so transparently is not working that, you know, I don't, I don't know that I trust them to fix it either. Cause like, I don't know when they're going to punt on, Adrian Gonzalez or whatever, but I think it's it could be another while. And they seem to have like weirdly no interest. Like they think Jose Lobaton is like really good or something. I know. One of you guys or somebody pointed out that Lobaton is exactly the type of dude that the Mets. That was Kate Feldman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that they like fall. Yeah, it was. That's right. That they fall in love with. Where it's like there's no actual redeeming attributes, but like. They somehow are, would be fine giving him 300 at bats. Which I mean, he, he's gonna have based I on. You're saying Kevin Paul, he's not gonna be back in a week. <laughs> Is that the original three-week timetable time would put him back next week? Yeah. Mm. Maybe he can catch uh, Jacob Degrom in his next start. <laughs> I mean, Lobaton is hitting a buck thirty-nine and playing awful defense, and yeah, he's, he's thirty-three. He stinks. Like I don't <laughs> want to. You know, I'm sure he's a nice guy or whatever, but like I seriously would rather watch Nito every day. And Nito is not a major league player yet either, as far as I can tell. Like this is Jose Lobaton the last five years. Out of, since 2014, he has broken a 600 OPS once. And a 200 batting average twice. They could get a guy that's marginally, that's like basically as shitty as him, but slightly better, right? Like, what does it cost? Get like, Rivera back, like. right? Or like Kurt Kazali, or like just one of these, like kind of just some available AAA butthead. Like how Rivera would be great. I would love to watch Rene Rivera catch again. What's some um, uh, Rod Barajas doing? <laughs> He's coaching somewhere. I know. I think he probably is. I forget where, but. John Buck back. Yeah, I mean, it's whatever. There's a lot of... I, I just... I, standing pat on that, I don't totally get. I, I gather just... This is based mostly on uh, Jared having pointed out that he transparently does not like it. Like, the fact that Jay Bruce isn't just the first baseman every day now seems, uh, you know... Like, I don't... They're not going to make Wilmer the first baseman every day. And if they're afraid to ask Bruce to play there, then, like, what do you do there? Like, that's an important position, too. They're getting zero from. As but, best as I can tell, Michael Conforto's actually, like, outright lost his job at this point. I I hope that's not the case. I mean, he's looked so bad. I mean, giving him a day off, I get. Giving him two days off, I, uh, I really hope he hasn't lost the job. I mean, he's, he's, sat, three out of, he's sat three out of the last five days... When Cespedes got hurt today, they put Nimmo in instead. He's at the bottom of the pinch hitting order when he's off, but he's still in the pinch hitting order, which means he's not getting full mental health days. Like, it's just like, it makes no sense unless he's just the fifth outfielder now. What is their fucking deal with him? Like, of all the, I get, like, I wrote about Harvey on Friday, and it, I have this theory, which I think I've explained to you guys. If I've done it once, I've obviously done it five times because that's how I operate uh, on this podcast. But that if when the Wilpons are like caddy about a star, it's because they're jealous. And then when they're when they're shitty to like Justin Turner or whatever, it's just because they're dicks. 
but with Conforto, like it seems they haven't, there hasn't been that much like high end organizational bad mouthing of him. It was clear like Terry wasn't sure about him. Like, there's no way that like Sandy thinks that he's not good, right? Sandy keep, Sandy's the one that keeps signing guys to block him. Sandy's the one that keep you know kept optioning him out a couple of years ago. It's just yeah. I mean, like, this is a very bad slump, and he looks terrible in it. And, you know, but it's freaking May. Like, it's obvious what type of player he is. He's been that player more than he had. He's not like Ike Davis. Like, this is, he's, like, really very good. Right. It's like 90, it's, you know, 90 plate appearances. It's that were almost all accrued during a period where he's supposed to be still rehabbing. You know, they did rush him back. His original timetable was May 1st. Oh, that's true. Because he was and, so good, he was so good right when he came back that I completely forgot about that. And it's not like he's been like useless; like he's been good well, he's defensively, and he's still thirty-five percent of the time. Yeah. yeah, like, like. Meanwhile, we're great with Jose Lopetegui and Tomas Nino, but Michael Conforto—he's a huge problem. <laughs> really, is I mean, whatever. The I get not wanting to panic. I understand not wanting to like you know, whatever, trade away something valuable for the right to pay Wilson Ramos or whatever. It's, it's you can get like, you can get like Cameron Rupp for free. Right. Who's like a, whatever, below average, but major league catcher. Right, I mean, this guy, Miguel Montero's fucking sitting at home right now. He's literally free. I wonder how long this can actually go on this way that like, they don't have... David, are you Mark- betting against the Mets just no, continuing at not. status quo? As a- I just can't believe that any team, because like they're still like you know they are in the race and stuff like that. The idea that just you're going to write off the bottom third of your order because like no one wants to tell Ahmed Rosario to not swing at everything and catchers, you know, it's really more about how they manage the staff and Adrian Gonzalez brings a lot to the locker room or whatever. Then like I don't, I just don't get like punting every third inning like even by the even for the Mets like that at some point they have to be like this is weird it's not like it's, the top of half of the lineup is so good that they no I know I mean right, I, I was looking at it today it's like basically as Drupal Cabrera and because Frazier walks so much but like you know with Cespedes out they don't have like everybody is significantly below average except for that now and it's, it's one thing to say we're not panicking but you're saying we're not panicking and it's not time to make moves yet when you just DFA'd a guy making six million. Yes. That you could have terminated for almost nothing a month ago. Yeah. Or a month and a half ago. This like, is the thing, like not panicking. I think when the Mets say that they're not panicking it means that we are not going to act. <laughs> and the which is, you know, it's fine. That's there are many different uh, ways to panic, um, but all of them involve doing shit. So I guess if you just pretend that nothing's happening. Uh, you're actually calm and laughing and probably think the whole thing is funny. <laughs> uh, but to me, the, yeah, the, the Harvey bit, I mean, I actually sort of get that move. I don't understand picking up the contract, giving him, a, you know, whatever, XYZ starts and then getting rid of him. But, like, him not being willing to take a minor league assignment or... That was I mean, all for I, show. I, I, I wouldn't go to Vegas either if I was him, because he wants out well, of there. Yeah, and he knows they weren't going to send. They weren't going to send him to Vegas. They were going to send him to St. Louis. Were they? I don't Which know if is, that matters or not. Right. That was what they had in mind. Was the like the Roy Halladay Cliff Lee thing, yeah. where you go to like rookie ball for three weeks? Yeah, they were going to send him to extended, then send him to the Florida State League. 
But yeah, the I don't know. I mean, I read that Verducci story about how his mechanics need to change. And I don't have a, I mean, shoulders whatever. Shoulders torched, like. Right, I was going to say, like, so maybe he changes his approach or maybe he changes a little bit of stuff a lot, you know, but the shit that he's been through and thoracic outlet surgery, it just seems like at this point is like really just not, you, people don't come back from it. So there's a there, dude. I mean, uh, the guy is Alex Cobb had it. He's fine, you know. Fulty's basically the same picture Fulty's always been. Um, there was a dude I saw for Binghamton. I think it was Adrian Rosario. They got him in the first the K Rod deal to Milwaukee. He was a guy that wasn't uh, Danny, Danny Herrera. Herrera. Yeah, <laughs> love Danny Herrera. I, um, I still feel like he got a raw deal because he's like exactly the same height and weight as my wife. <laughs> You're about to be revealing that on the podcast. David. No, it's the same. Five six one ten, right? Like he was like, <laughs> or one fifteen. Like it's a little dude. Um, but I saw it, so Adrian Rosario when they traded for him was like, you know, mid nineties, but had command issues, like that sort of general reliever lottery ticket you get, and well, at this point, really every deal the Mets make. Right. But, I say. <laughs> before we knew that was going to be a distinct pick up right? He had like a mysterious shoulder issue, and then he showed up in Binghamton that year throwing like eighty-eight to ninety, and it's just like guys don't come back from shoulder stuff. So, and it's important to talk about what thoracic outlet syndrome is. It's literally a compression of the ribs that fucks up the nerves in your shoulder and your hand. Like, this is nerve damage. And it tends to not, and nerve damage doesn't regenerate. That's why it's nerve damage. Like, so, like, there's quotes from Harvey at various points saying, I can't feel the ball. Yeah, that was the. I remember that. That that was like the issue. Like if you like, watch whatever his secondary like, stuff now, it sure looks like he has no touch and feel for that stuff. Right, like his literal ability to feel and manipulate the baseball with his hand has been affected. And I was one, surprised that his fastball didn't play up more out of the bullpen. But it may be that this is like just the physical outer boundary of what he can do right now is like right. ninety three miles an hour and dropping. Right. Is that is that what you think it is? That like just nothing in there is working the way it's supposed to work? Yeah, I mean they you know, Boris so much has admitted it after, you know, in his conference call, you know, that he's still in you know, the shoulder rehab process. Um and I guess Harvey wasn't unwilling to take a demotion to the minor leagues, or at least this is what Boris said. He was unwilling to take a demotion to the minor leagues without having an out clause. The Mets wouldn't commit to not keeping him down there like the rest of the year. Like he's just going to pitch at St. Lucie for four months? That's not... They, they, this, you get back that extra like, year of control then, David. Heady right. <laughs> yes. if, if he signs, if he's DFA'd or he signs as a free agent somewhere and accepts a minor league assignment, he could dictate the terms of the assignment as part of the contract. That was the point that Boris was making, and the Mets were unwilling to make that kind of concession. The Mets pretty... don't make concessions for their regular minor league free agents, right. which is why they don't get say, any. Why would they do it for the guy that they've been like basically implying has a drinking problem for five straight years? <laughs> drinking problem, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, and, some, it's, and some other problems. So. Yeah. The, uh, I'm just going to take a peek here at the current Texas Rangers 
starting rotation because honestly I couldn't name it off the top of my head, so I had to well, pull it we up. Well, we know Bart. Martin Perez. Martin Perez is hurt right now. It's uh, is it still the ball injury or is it a new injury? Uh, let me see. He has pitched this season though, so I don't think it was the bull injury. I think he's pitched this season. He is. Uh, yeah, let's see. I'm trying to guess who the other guys are. Like Elbow discomfort. Oh. Mm. Not Chichi Gonzalez, right? Not he's Chichi not Gonzalez. there. He's, like, he's on Tommy John rehab because I own him in my score sheet league. It's uh, Cole Hamels, Doug Fister, Matt Moore, Mike Miner, and Bart. Matt Moore is still in the rotation. This is ERA like nine. It's not great. Uh, Doug Fister, wow. Fister beat out Bart for the rotation spot in spring training. Yeah. Which is, anytime we start complaining about the Mets being depressing, I think that's a, a good sentence to go back to. Yeah, but Bartolo's in the rotation now. I know, Bartolo's I know. Bart- you only beat out Bartolo Colon temporarily. I think we all know that that's the, the way that the shit works. Bartolo has a uh, 3.29 ERA in 38 innings so far this year. 25 strikeouts, three walks. Three walks. I'm looking at the same thing. What a fucking <laughs> it's, champ. It's, it's a Bartolo line now. It's all those. Right before. Eight homers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. That is solid. All, all solo shots, probably, though. So. Right before I went to Brazil, I actually did, which I think is probably my most useless non Trump related blog post at Deadspin, which was just. I spent like an entire afternoon looking at Bartolo's batter's faced page, and I just like turned it into a blog post to like basically to expiate my guilt for having spent an entire day being like he faced chili davis but like <laughs> he, de- he definitely faced chili davis like there's like a lot of really just wonderful shit on that page it is like a just a tour of you know whatever 20 odd years but he spans those generations like he faced like mark grace five times <laughs> that must have been all interleague right yeah. yeah. I mean, Interleague started in, like, around or there Mon- or so. Montreal, Grace was with Arizona, possibly. Was Grace still with Arizona in 02? Not in 02, he wasn't. That was Luis yeah. Gonzalez's first basement by then, I think. Yeah, that was that was the Bartolo-Montreal excursion. I gotta tell you, looking at the uh, Rangers roster, there's not really a lot of guys that I would want to accept in trade. I think I've made this point on Twitter before. But Bartolo Colon in 2002 was the prize of the trade deadline and was traded for three top prospects, all of whom turned into major league stars. And he's going to outla- and he's outlasted all three. Oh, yeah. Brady Sizemore, Cliff Lee, and Brandon Phillips. That is crazy. Outlasted all of them. And they were like MVP candidates. So it's like repeat all stars. Like Cliff Lee won at least a Cy Young. And he was 29 at that time. Like, he wasn't young. He was, he was like, the trade deadline, dude. Like, um, I don't know who's going to be that dude this year. Uh, somebody how, else. Chris how many more years do the How many more years do the Rangers have Cole Hamels for? If they think it's they a couple. I guess they don't really want to tear things down. That's not a great roster right now, though. Yeesh. I mean, I know there's a lot of guys hurt and everything like that, but yeah, it's they've. I mean, they're what like ten games under already. Yeah. Carlos Tozzi is one. Isaiah Kinder Falifa is cool, but 
he's not Ben Soberist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's really cool. As like your 25th... I mean, he's basically like slightly better Phil Evans. Yeah. I would so. I would watch Condor Guzman play first base <laughs> for the Mets every day and be excited to do it, but I know that that's not realistic. Yeah. Like, I Joey would... Gallo is having a very Joey Gallo. Very Joey Gallo. I mean, yeah. honestly, I'd get like cd pelham and call it a day like you're not getting they can't get cd pelham for matt harvey <laughs> see like we, pelham didn't even make like our top 20 <laughs> like we can't get this CD is pelham. i was you guys were talking about him with a great deal of authority and i'd be like oh cd pelham <laughs> cd pelham is a loved him in police prospect. academy cd pelham, pelham is, is a ball relief prospect but he's left-handed and throws like 96 so cd pelham is robert carson if robert carson had command she was that's well, Twitter thinks PJ Connell moves. Oh, <laughs> how is that going to go? Oh, God. I mean... Uh, so I found the transaction analysis, and it was basically an ode to, uh, like, PJ Connell's the first Irish-born major leaguer since uh, 45 and the first Belfast-born one since, like, 1910. But, like, for, like, the first, like, 50 years of American baseball, um, there were a ton of Irish immigrants playing. You know, like, if you go back to, like, the National Association in the early days of the National League, it's, like, all Irish immigrants. So I kind of, like, did, like, this is, like, a return to um, the origins of baseball. Yeah. That was, like, a, I remember I wrote a piece when I was in the freelance period before I started at Deadspin where Stephen Goldman was talking about how that was, that like, when you go back over those early days of baseball, that it's basically just, like, every immigrant class would eventually like work its way out of having to play baseball. But like in the, whatever from the 19th century, like well into the, you know, the thirties, it was like kind of like a day class, a profession for a lot of people. And so right. it would be like, you could kind of trace the assimilation of different immigrant communities in terms of how they would be like a ton of them in baseball. And then it would like normalize. Right, like the British and Irish is like mostly in like the Reconstruction period through like the Industrial Revolution, but then like it's Germans um, and Central, Poles yeah, and, like yeah. Central and Eastern Europe is is like through like you know the fifties and sixties. Yeah, I got that. Um, is it the Glory of Their Times? I got at the the Goodwill that I go to That's, constantly. It, in addition to the book, um, get the CDs because they are. Oh, is it? They have actual. Dude's talking. Yeah, fantastic. I will definitely do that. Yeah, it's like a six CD set of like just the dudes being interviewed. The dudes for the listeners are like baseball players of the first two three decades of the 20th century, and the stories are just fucking wild. Like all these guys were like, I, you know, everyone in my family died in a graphite mine in central <laughs> Pennsylvania. Like, and that was like, I wanted to do that too, but like someone noticed that I could throw a peach pit and like blow up a soda bottle. So I got a job with the whatever, but it's all just like the craziest, like, yeah, it's like Sam Crawford, Joe Wood, um, Rube Marquard left the yeah. old duel, like all these players from the guys whose story I basically just butchered there is Stan Koval which is yes. incredible stuff. It's a great left-handed pitcher in the teens and twenties for the Indians. Um, yeah, and these are like it's basically dead ball era up through like the pre World War II. And they all um, threw about as hard as PJ Conlon does now. <laughs> it would be good if he showed up with like really blousy pants yeah. and like a hat, like a twelve panel hat. Basically, Larry Ritter, who is a, uh, I mean wrote a lot about baseball actually um 
went around for most of the 60s just like interviewing these dudes and compiling their stories and um, he compiled them into a book and then after his death um, the audio tapes of the interviews uh, were released in CD format so sounds like- you can probably find I'm guessing you can find it on Amazon the uh, CDs on Amazon should probably look that up before I cool that there's like a baseball version of the who is the the dude that traveled around recording folk musicians in the 20th yeah, century yeah you're talking about took all the credit for it alan yeah. something yeah all the field not recordings. only is not only does the audio book exist uh okay apparently the cds are actually like super expensive but it's on audible so it's there like a dollar 99 cool yeah but the cds are apparently like 150 but that can't be right this is a, it's a testament to how depressing it is to talk about Matt Harvey that we're like, in, we've just been reviewing books. <laughs> I mean, we do that normally, so. Yeah, that's true. <sighs> so since this oh. is the... Uh, yeah, you can get a copy of the CDs on eBay for like 10 bucks. Yeah. So. so since yeah. this is the series finale of This Week in Matt Harvey, although Jar- Jarrett continues to deny that it is. Yeah. We're treating it as such. Uh, what are some of your favorite series finales in history? That's a, a good one. I was thinking about it today when you mentioned it, and I think that there's more. I remember ones that I disliked more than I remember the ones that I liked. Dexter. Like even the, what's that? Dexter. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's shows where like they're on for so long that by the time they get to the end of it, like even for me, like I love. It's like it seems hacked because like fucking Whitlock and Simmons talk about it all the time. Like I love the Wire dearly, and I think that the finale of like the last episode of season five is very good, but like everything that came before it in season five just sucked so bad that by the time we got to it, I was just sort of like, all right, could like fine, we can part friends. <laughs> but that was like, that as far was, as go. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that wasn't really considered like a series finale. Like they even keep talking about making another season of that, right? I don't know. I mean, maybe I hope they do, uh, but well, actually, I kind of don't. I don't know. I feel like they should do it if if Burns is going to be involved and not if it's just like Simon grinding some Twitter axe or whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking Mr. Trump. So this the TV show that went down the worst but recovered the best for its series finale by far is The Office. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the British Office had a wonderful those little move the two like Christmas party ones that they made. Mm-hmm. I both love really dearly. And I remember liking, I was little when this aired, or not little, but, you know, like young enough that I don't trust my faculties. I remember thinking that the Cheers finale was really nice. That there was like, it's like almost really sad, and then, you know, whatever, it's not. Spoiler, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta spoil the 20 year old. Parks and Rec was really good, yeah. Uh, Friday Night Lights had a great finale. Uh, Star Trek The Next Generation is uh, one of my favorites. Yeah. I don't know about that. What happens? So they do a thing where uh, Picard basically starts traveling through time, but in the future they think it's like symptom of a neurological disease he has, but it turns out it's Q testing him again. So he travels like 20 years in the future and then into the encounter at Farpoint in the, season, in the series premiere, and it bounces back and forth, and he has to discover some sort of like temporal paradox and save the universe. But it just... Uh, it ends with him finally joining the card game with the senior staff. It's like Actually the last sounds... scene of it. It's like really, it's just like a really like effective. And it's just basically a showcase for Patrick Stewart to act for two hours. Yeah, which is I was gonna say that it yeah. seems like one of those things where 
you know, whatever, he could do it all along, but I imagine he had to spend a lot of time, like, talking to a guy with a huge face of makeup on, being like, or I haven't seen that many episodes of that. You know, a show that Kate rewatched recently that I disliked when it was on first, or I didn't like it, and then I disliked intensely when she was rewatching it, is Six Feet Under, and that has an extremely audacious and, like, kind of, like, bizarrely generous last few minutes of the finale yeah and i remember i thought it was very moving when i saw it first and i thought it was moving again when i saw it it's just like it's weird it's one of those hbo shows i mean prestige tv in general i think like they stay on long enough and eventually you realize that the people doing it hate all the characters and hate you for (laughs) making them continue to write them yeah and that can be you know there's like very little coming back from that and the sopranos i thought until whatever the the last mini season was really almost around the bend on that like i have to rewatch that to remember it but i mean i think with a lot of these shows i mean maybe it's just me getting sick of it or whatever but you can sort of tell when the light's gone out and then you know if there's like two seasons of somebody writing about like just a bunch of assholes and they're constantly rubbing your nose and what assholes they are like there's definitely a better way to spend time than that the one, that, um, the one that really affected me as a kid was David the Gnome. What's that? It's a Spanish cartoon. Here, I'm just going to read this. So it's like this, you know, like standard sort of, you know, didactic, vaguely ecological show about gnomes living in the woods. Yeah, one of those. Yeah. The common genre that we love yeah. to know and discuss here on the baseball podcast. <laughs> but, uh,. They're, the the finale is like really weirdly dark for a, you know, essentially what's a, I probably saw it when I was like seven or something. So let me just read this the uh, synopsis on Wikipedia. David and his wife Lisa must go off into the mountains because their time on Earth is almost over. They know they will not live past the age of four hundred years. David finishes writing his journal about the gnomes. He and Lisa are visited by an Arctic mouse who is carrying a message from their old friend Casper, who explains that he's not want to go alone. On the way, David and Lisa meet up with all the animals who have come to say goodbye. Then they travel to the Blue Mountains and have tea with Casper. Past the Blue Mountains is a beautiful valley of flowers. They tell Swift, who's like the fox that hangs out with them. He cannot climb up the mountain with them. The gnomes ascend the mountain and say final goodbyes. As David and Lisa pass on, their bodies turn into intertwined apple trees. Casper passes moments later after muttering himself for a while. On the way back to the forest, Swift meets another gnome named Christopher, who rides a female fox named Agnes. Swift and Agnes appear to be romantically interested in each other. The spirits of the past gnomes wave goodbye. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, when you're eight, that, like, kind of messes with you. Yeah, that is <laughs> definitely, like, some just, it's like if Watership Down <laughs> yeah. was a little bit more fanciful, and, yeah, and fewer rabbits. That's, that's intense. That was I was thinking too of the ones that I didn't actually see it because I never watched the show, but the the dinosaurs show where it was like people yeah, yeah. in rubber costumes walking around, and it basically ends with them going extinct. Yes. It's like it's cold in here. Like our bodies are not built for this, and they're just like rolling the credits over it like that. I don't know. I guess there's fewer completely misbegotten weird television shit like that happening now, which I think is. Maybe for the best, I don't know. All these shows that are getting not just like rebooted or whatever, but I remember Parks and Rec had it. New Girl is doing it now, where they kind of like the time jump. Get, yeah, yeah, the time jump, and then this like big valedictory sort of. 
the new girl is still very funny i think uh i always like that show I, I really came to like that very much just i think all the performers on it are great but it is a sort of thing where like with parks and rec too where like there's this Danger of being congratulatory. Yeah, yeah. Being so reverent and being like just one last like dignified send off, which is like kind of the opposite of of anything comic. I mean, that show was always like it was like so weirdly optimistic and so like it could like pull that off. Like they can make Leslie Knoll president of the United States in 30 years without it coming off like super fan service. It's kind of true, actually. I mean, it was basically the... I mean, I don't know that they would believe that the country would be good in 30 years, but it definitely is the sort of move that they could have pulled. Right. Like they kind of soft-pedal it. Right. They, like, make, like, this logical progression as you go through, like, even, like, the course of the series, but then obviously it's really sped up at the end where, you know, Ben runs for Congress and then she becomes, like, a... a considerable figure in the federal government and then runs for governor of Indiana and then ends up being president. Yeah, I guess not, it's like if they Although it's kind it. of like a wink-wink thing that she's actually elected, but it's pretty clearly obvious if you're paying attention. And, like, that, but that's, like, that was, like, honest to the show and what the show was, whereas most shows couldn't have gotten away with that. Um... Like, I mean, this was, like, a show where, like, just Joe Biden would show up occasionally or whatever. And it's just, hey, Joe Biden showed up. Such a weird vision of fan service, too, because it's like, you say all that stuff, and I'm like, yes, I understand, because I watched the show. That does seem fan service-y. But then, like, if you were not somebody who watched the show, and you were just like, all right, so it's a sitcom that was pandering to its viewers by bringing in the sitting vice president of the United States... And, and having first lady, and right. all kinds of people, yeah. And having a woman get elected to like get appointed to like a good position at the whatever Department of the Interior, like that. Yeah. It was a weird sitcom, but that makes it sound even weirder than it actually was. And like from where she started to where she ended up is like, if you look at it on paper, it like makes no sense that she could have made this progression over the course of the show. But watching it actually get. And I don't know, that's, I mean, that's also, like, an imminently rewatchable show, like, in the, I don't want to, like, get too political, but, like, in the age of Trump, like, if you need to continue to be optimistic about things. Yeah. Um, it does, I think it's that sort of, it's got that, uh, like, the way that opinion polls show that, like, people are satisfied with their Congress person but not anybody else the way that they believe that like their town is good but that like every place around them has been taken over by fucking ms-13 or whatever that like with all of that it just seems like there's something very like local and reassuring about it even in a way that like goes beyond the way that like rewatching a television show has this kind of you know narcotizing but in like a benign way effect like but like you know like they treated like like Jerry or I guess he ends up being Gary at the end um, is like he's actually like in the in the context of their office he's like the punching bag but he also ends up being the dude with like the absolutely perfect life yeah I mean that was always that was I think a very generous joke that they had in there all the way through too that like for all the the ways that he got shitted on and everything like he had like the best home life like the happiest family like and it goes right. 
it goes right until the end, like the end of the thing where she shows up as president is his funeral at age 100 as a 10 term mayor of Pawnee. <laughs> Fucking Barry. <laughs> yeah. Like... I forget how many named Jerry, Gary. There are two different spellings of Jerry, uh, which I always enjoyed. Yeah, I haven't, uh, I guess like in terms of like rewatching things, we haven't done as much of that. There's a lot of, my wife DVRs a lot of stuff. And so there's like all these tiers of shows that we'll watch. Some we watch together. Some I will watch in the room with her while I'm booping around on my computer or whatever. And then some I, I simply won't be in the room for. But there's not I've, a lot of like rewatching going on. I've been forcing myself to rewatch Game of Thrones because I wanted to watch the episodes before I listened to the Binge Mode podcast, which I've had stacked up for like almost a year now, mm-hmm. which is a very good podcast. But you like have to actually watch the Game of Thrones episodes before you do the Game of Thrones. And I've hit I've hit the middle of season five, and I just like it's a chore to like like I know it gets better, and like I was just like yeah, that was Tom Lay, my coworker, wrote a piece that I think uh, will have well, but I don't know what kind of long lasting impact it will have, but I think it's very true that it was basically just encouraging people to like if you're not enjoying a show, you don't need to keep watching the show. Like if you like if you watched a whole season of Westworld, that doesn't mean that you then have to watch a whole other season of Westworld. It just means that you watched a whole season of Westworld, which is fine. You can recover from that if you choose to. <laughs> I, I watched ten minutes of Westworld and realized it just wasn't for me. Yeah, and it seems like people watch much more of Westworld before realizing it wasn't for them. Have you actually ever met a Westworld fan? No. Yeah, Jeff. It, it's one of that shows that you don't actually like, but you admire, and I can't get into that. Uh... Yeah. Do, do you know the show that was that for me? It was Mad Men. It and was... I watched that entire fucking show, and I just, like... I liked it until I realized that I didn't like it anymore. Right, <laughs> that was, that was like, one that was yeah, very yeah. liberating to give up, where I was like, oh, he's got a mistress. Neat. And, like, it was just, you know, any other thing would have done better for me. First couple seasons, I I found really memorable. You know, like they, there's still stuff from that that sticks with me. But yeah, I mean, I, I make the not great Bob jokes too, but <laughs> uh, it's just like the show is just, and I can. There's so much TV out there, and all of it is like really well done. And a lot of it's just not entertaining. Yeah, that's true. There's this whole other, these like new genres that have come into existence just over the last few years of like things that are ostensibly comedies that have no jokes or laughs in them. Uh, just because they're like, comedies because they're like short or whatever. And then, yeah, there's, I think, I mean, whatever. I don't want to talk too much about this shit because I, there's a lot of TV that I don't watch and I probably would like, you know, I've never seen a single episode of The Americans. Like, I'm sure it's okay. very good. Everybody so says the- it. The Americans is, like, legitimately one of my favorite shows. I haven't even finished last season yet, let alone started this season, just because it's, like, there's only so much time. And this is a show that I, like, legitimately really, really like. And it's not like these are, like, the longest series in the world, but, I mean, I can also watch, like, 10% 10% less Japanese wrestling and, you know, handle all <laughs> oh, of this. Uh, but, but, could, but could you? <laughs> we, uh... We started watching Altered Carbon like two months ago and I've gotten halfway through the series and it's like 10 episodes. That was a show that uh, my coworkers started watching because it 
seemed hilarious because it seemed so ridiculous and because the guy's name is like Takeshi Kovacs. Yeah. And then uh, like just which was like a whole internal slack meme for a while. <laughs> but now like three or four of them are like fully on board being like, I heard they're going to pick up season two. Hell yeah. Like fucking it's, more Kovacs. It's, like they're ready. It's literally like every actor in that show is in a different show and no one told each other that they're all on different shows, like what the show actually is supposed to be. This is kind of like how I feel about a lot of this stuff. I think that there's been like the revolution in television, such as people understand it, is like a revolution in production value. And well, it's very pretty to look at. Right. And that's not nothing. You know, I mean, it's like they have better filmmakers doing this stuff. They the actors, you know, they have access to the same level of talent that, you know, anybody making a movie would have. And like and the stuff does look great, which in most cases, I think just makes it take longer for you to realize that it's not better than it was it just looks better you know that like the and i don't think that's entirely true across the board but i think that on balance uh the stuff that people sort of like identify as prestige shit is the result of like aesthetics and that like writing wise there's still like not there aren't enough interesting ideas there aren't enough like perspectives that are really like uh you know capable of sustaining multiple seasons of stuff and so you wind up with these things like uh like mr robot or some shit where like everybody flips their shit over it for like a year and then they realize that it's out of ideas person of interest was like that for me people like, love that and uh, i really loved that show for a couple of seasons and then it just like ran out of stuff to do basically and just started like torturing its main characters that's the thing frustrating with any of the i mean just like not to say whatever this sounds like unbearable but like the british model of just like uh having a show end is like i think and like you know like when the people creating it want to end it like that sounds better to me than just like continuing to fucking run it back as long as someone's asking you to do it like i understand it's kind of crazy anatomy is coming up right that's a show i won't be in the room for but kate does watch same oh it is rough stuff everyone's so mean <laughs> Nobody on that show. They're not, they're, none of them are likable. Yeah, that's the main problem. It's went so far beyond. Like, I mean, I really loved that show for I don't know the first six or seven years. seasons. <laughs> yeah. Wait, Grey's uh, Anatomy? You're you're a Grey's Anatomy head? Oh, I'm a big Grey's Anatomy, early Grey's Anatomy fan. Like when it was like nuts and like you know. Yeah, like, crazy Izzy doing crazy stuff. And... As far as I can tell, like, recently they're just all angry, scowling people all the time. Yeah. Right, and, like, so many people have died and just, like... Yeah, the, it's... the delight that they take in killing people off is, like... Even, I think, for Kate, it's, like, a turnoff. Like, there's, like, one character that they're writing off the show, and she was like, I hope they let her, you know, like, get married and move to Tennessee or something. And then it's just, it looks like it's actually, like two helicopters land on her. <laughs> you know, this is like the classic Grey's Anatomy move of just like brutally dispatching a beloved longtime character. Right. And like, they've like let almost nobody just like go like Addison just went off and did her spinoff. So, but they like also lost a lot when that show lost Addison. Is that and, the Kate Walsh? Yeah. That was like the beginning of the starting downfall. And I guess Callie, was Sarah Ramirez's character got to go off and not get killed, but they've killed like everybody that's left the show other than that. Kind of a fucked up thing to do. 
Except they never killed off Izzy because they couldn't get Katherine Heigl back to actually kill her off. <laughs> she just has, just... She has, she has termi- she's had terminal cancer outside the show for like eight years now. She, I thought she died on the way back to her home planet. I mean, essentially, yeah. You know what's going to be fun is uh, when I sit down to eat dinner in a few minutes and I explain to Kate that on the Mets podcast we talked about Grey's Anatomy for 15 minutes. I was say, this week in Matt Harvey, here's all the TV shows we don't like. Yep, seriously. It's like... <laughs> but, I mean, what else can you talk about with Matt Harvey, really? It's like, this is a thing that happened. It sucked. People that claim to know why it happened, like... I made the dick joke as a dick joke, but I also made it to point out that he was throwing 98 with a wipeout slider at the beginning of spring training in 2016. Yeah. After he threw 230 innings or whatever it was in 2015, after he threw 120 pitches in the World Series, he was still fine for another, like, four games of pitching after that. And then he got this weird rib thing that doesn't really seem to be connected to pitching overuse. And then a shoulder died because of that. Like, it's like, it's just something that happened. Like it might be happening to Clayton Kershaw right now. You know, he's on the DL and getting a second opinion with mysterious, you know, bicep issues that have caused them to no longer throw very hard. Um, and... It's always fascinated me about pitching. I wanted to write a story about this, and I may yet do it. I wanted to write about Joel Zumaya, but just like the actual, sure. the defined boundaries of what a body can do when it comes to pitching. That like, I think that there is like an an upper boundary for this stuff. That there's only so much that you can take. There's only so fast that you know you can throw. Like Zumaya's last big league pitch, he broke his forearm in half throwing it. Right, and we've been pushing, and as the velocity has been increasing and increasing and increasing, we've been pushing more up against that. Yeah. And as more guys are throwing, you know, 92-mile-an-hour sliders and, you know, 94-mile-an-hour Vulcan change-ups, and, like, the arm's just not meant to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's meant to do it for a little while or whatever. It's just sort of a reminder. I mean, this is the other thing with Harvey, like, this predictable drum for me to beat and... But, like, this is another reason why the pay scale thing sucks, is that, like, that guy, you know, was worth a great deal more to the Mets than he ever got from them. And, you know, right when it's time for him to cash in, like, he's going to fucking enroll in the police academy. Right. And, um, I think somebody's actually writing about that that'll be out by the time most people hear about that, but, um, hear this podcast, but. One of you guys? I mean, I no. sort of wrote um, I, yeah. think, I think Lindsay's written something it makes related sense. to that. Um, but, yeah, it's just like it sucks. And, you know, it's not, you know, Harvey's made $17 million as a major leaguer. Plus, you know, I got a $3 million signing bonus. And Endorsements sure with like Qualcomm and for stuff. A while. So he's not. Well, that thing that really lifestyle. he might actually go broke, but um, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, he provided hundreds of millions of dollars of value to the franchise. Right, that's what I was going to say. That like that's the the part of it that seems unfair. That and the I... fact that he that he owes one oak like seven hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. 
presumably. <laughs> just that's just back bottle service tabs. <laughs> the thing that bothers me is like the people that are pretending like he wasn't the best pitcher in baseball or one of them non Clayton yeah. Kershaw division from like 2013 to 2015. A little bit of that, like right when they moved him to the bullpen, everybody's like, has there ever been a bigger bust? And it's like, he started the fucking all-star game, <laughs> idiot, when he was like 23. Like, come on. And this is like a weird parallel to Dwight Gooden. Now, Dwight Gooden was the best pitcher in baseball for about three years. Yeah, 84 to 86, you could argue. And then... You know, your shoulder. for all the off-field, for all the cocaine, for all the alcohol, for all the, all that, that was not what wrecked his career. He pulled his shoulder out. And, you know, that was not what wrecked Matt Harvey's career. He blew his shoulder out. <laughs> like, you know, Matt Harvey didn't blow his shoulder out because he was hanging out at One Oak with Henrik Lundqvist until 4 a.m. on days that he wasn't pitching. I think that's the part of it that's really hard for people to accept, is that this can just happen. Especially with someone like Harvey, who's been undermined by his employer in the press every week, basically, for years. Even when he was good. Right, yeah. I mean, even, like, bizarrely, especially when he was good. I mean, that they were like, oh, it's a distraction. He's doing too much of this. He's doing, And that was, like, the old Wilpon shit where they're just like, if you guys wanted to go to the club, you should go to the fucking club. Like, but don't get mad at him for doing it. He's 24 and he's rich. Like, And for, and for all of that stuff, this guy was an absolutely relentless competitor, and he was an absolutely relentless in terms of training, too. This was not a guy that was you know, going out and getting smashed and skipping his weight training and his throwing sessions and all of that stuff. He, he, that was like something that like he really enjoyed doing. Um, you know, Noah Syndergaard's like that too. Like, you know, for all, you know, Noah Syndergaard's out tweeting and, you know, all he, his, he goes to know, a club or two too. You know, he goes to the clubs and he goes to the Knicks games and he goes to the Rangers games but the dude's also out there putting his work in too. Right. That was something like, I, I wrote about too. That like I think it's all it's it's in how it gets spun or like what the guy's doing. That like when Harvey was doing all that stuff, he was a superstar. He was doing ace type shit. His mentality, which was every bit as like bullheaded as it was when he demanded to stay in Game Five in 2015, that like all of that was considered part of what made him great. And then as soon as the fucking worm turns and your shoulder is screwed up, then that's all considered the reason why he can't get it together. He won't compromise. He won't listen. He won't do this or that. He won't, you know. And I guess, like, he's always been the same type of dude. And I gather that Syndergaard is kind of like this, too, where he's just, like, not, like, the nicest guy. Not maybe the warmest dude in the world. But, like, you know, very few people that – it's like the way that, like – Aaron Rodgers is probably not a fun guy to play ping pong against. Like these people are all psychotic. That's how they get (laughs) to this level. Like, it's fine. It's cool. Like that's, you know, like easygoing people get to host podcasts and appear on podcasts. (laughs) And then like fucking weirdos are the ones that are like flipping a tire over a bunch of times so that they can pitch better against the brewers. And, And there's like plenty of dudes that aren't that are you know, like family dudes and don't go out and don't, that don't put the work in. You know, like, it, like what the perception is of what a guy's doing in his off time has very little percep, very little to do with, you know, their, like, level of preparation. And I think that was something that, you know, 
people just kind of assume that because Harvey's, you know, out all the time and isn't necessarily always in the best cosmetic shape, that he wasn't putting his work in. The dude was putting his work in. That's the part, too, that's, like, most unfair, I think, is the fact that, like, some people carry weight in their under chin. It's not like a... <laughs> like, I mean, I get a little bit of that, too. Like, it's not... I'm not exercising. I deserve it. But, yeah, like, with Harvey, it's just, like, one of those things where, yeah, he got boned well, over by the fact he didn't photograph right. We've talked about this before. One of the hardest training players in baseball is Bartolo Colon. That's how you still pitch like this at age 46. <laughs> He would he would do his work. He would do his normal team training, and then he would go to the twenty four hour fitness and do three three hours of more training every day. You know, except for days that he was pitching. But you know, he had like his entire. You know, Jesse Sanchez went down and like did like his off season regimen. Like pitchers go to Bartolo Colon during the off season to learn his off season regimen and like can't keep up with it. It's like the old Jerry Rice stories of, like, uh, Terrell Owens trying to do the off-season regimen. They do, like, two hours of calisthenics. And, like, he thinks they're going to break for lunch. Like, no, now we're going to run up this hill for, like, five miles. Right. And <laughs> this was, like, I'm Rice sure. was, like, in his late 30s. And, you know, Bartolo Colon probably has bad genetics, and he probably eats too much. And that's why he looks like that. But it doesn't have anything to do with the, how hard he works. You can't be... I mean, you a... saw the picture of him and his father. They have the exact same body types. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, and... You know, and th- and then you always hear surprisingly athletic. It's like, is he really surprisingly athletic, or are we just paying too much attention to what things look like? You know, there's right. an article that Jeffrey and I both contributed to that's going to go up within the next couple of days at BP, where one of the points is... That in, I think, player evaluation, we care way too much what things look like as opposed to what the outcome is. Uh, That's more specific to actually smaller players. But, like, you know. Yeah, Mookie Betts is one of the best power hitters in baseball now. I didn't think it was going to happen either. If you looked at Mookie Betts, you wouldn't figure out how, but he is. Hard with all of this stuff. It's different because you guys have to do like actual evaluating stuff. But for me, as just somebody that that watches games and gets upset uh, for a living, which is I don't want to sound like I'm complaining about any of that. There's this that tendency to sort of write uh, a story over the stuff that you're seeing. Like I mean, it's very human. It's like again, that's also my job. But the idea of like wanting all of this to somehow be justified by you know some other thing the idea of like all success is earned all failure is the result of something else like you know whatever it's when it's applied to politics it's poison i mean it it makes for a cruel and stupid uh country (laughs) and politics but even with stuff like this which is comparatively low stakes it just seems unfair but it's also it's hard with harvey this was the thing i kept coming back to and writing about it and thinking about it is the idea that like it just it doesn't scan this isn't like the sort of thing where you, it, like it doesn't make sense it isn't fair it's not something that even you know that anybody really deserves and like even if you know that like deserves got nothing to do with it it's still the sort of thing where like just accepting it as being like you know but, but one of the things is if you're a observer of baseball it doesn't make sense on an individual basis but there's a hell of a lot of pitchers that just went out on their shields, like, out of nowhere. You know, Roy Halladay, Brandon Webb, 
Johan Santana. Um, All at different times, different times in their career for sure. But like when it's over, it's over. Right. But Brandon Webb, basically the same age as Harvey, goes from being the best pitcher in baseball to basically out of baseball overnight. What was his injury? Shoulder. Really? Yeah. You know, he was he was second in the Cy Young voting at age twenty nine in two thousand eight, and he pitched four major league innings after that. Wow, that is totally right. I'm looking at his page right now. He didn't have that humpback thing that Harvey does on the other side where like because he because Harvey just got his dick kicked in for three seasons, like his career stats are like really boring looking now. Yeah, I mean Brandon Webb is basically Sandy Colfax. Yeah, I mean it really is like that last Except he didn't pitch that many innings and he you know, it wasn't the nineteen sixties, so he wasn't putting up one point nine ERAs. But that last three season stretch that he had, uh, two thousand six to two thousand eight was wild and that was like a heavy offense era his era is right around three and he's just like yeah leading the league in era plus leading the league in feb i mean like tim lincecum is a another one where it just went and he's still chasing it trying to get it back you know webb you know webb's last good season is 2008 he pitches four innings after that and he still tries to come back for five years, and he never makes it back. Did he pitch in the minors and stuff, or was it just the yeah. sort of thing where... Yeah, he... I'll pull up his minor league page, but yeah, he uh, he ended up also with Texas, because Texas just fucking loves these guys. I mean, they've lent to come too now. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was under contract with Texas, made four starts in AA, um, during which he gave up 13 runs in 12 innings. Oh, and... yeah. Um, ignominious. I know Mark Pryor did that for a while too. Lord knows what it's like to have to try to fix your approach or your brain around that after you've like just to to be the guy that like basically dominates everyone and then suddenly just it's all gone at once. I I was thinking about writing this as an article, but it's too football focused. I'll just bring it up here, like. I was just thinking about, like, Nick Foles the other day. Nick Foles is essentially a career backup, but he's made a, like, bizarrely large amount of money for being a career backup because he's, like, just good enough where teams keep trying to make him a starter and give him a starter contract. But he... He's considered to go to go do like religious work. So the dude has the greatest four game stretch of his career wins the Super Bowl, wins the Super Bowl MVP. Like what the fuck is this guy coming back for to be Carson Wentz's backup? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, he's going to get paid a bunch of money not to do anything this year. So that's kind of nice. Right. And after this year, he's going to get paid a bunch of money because he's a Super Bowl MVP and somebody's going to give him $30 million guaranteed to make him a starter again. I kind of wonder about that. But I mean, like, I think I think you kind of you know that would make sense, but the NFL doesn't necessarily make sense. What's weird with him is he had another. It's another one of those guys that had that crazy career arc where he was like not especially highly regarded. He did have that one. It was like most of a season where he was basically the most efficient quarterback that the NFL had he ever had the really seen. Fluky interception rate. He had the really fluky touchdown and interception rates that one the first time he was with Philly. 
But like, it has to be like tempting for that guy to just like walk away, right? Like, you're never going to reach that point in your profession again. There's no way he's ever going to do that again. I would take, like, the $8 million this year and then just, like... uh, But he's also in a position where he can now, like, essentially for the next 50 years book, like, $20,000 personal appearances in the Philadelphia area, like, at will. (laughs) But would you really want to do that? I mean, do you want to get beat up by (laughs) NFL defensive ends instead? No, neither. Although this is... I. I really do have to think about it more. I shouldn't have answered so quickly. I'll try to be in like a Ramada in in like Delaware County. It's not right. Like you know, he he go you know he's going to these things, and he'll have you know a bunch of people come up and say he was like a life changing influence on their life. Sign some autographs, take some pictures, and make like you know fifteen, twenty, twenty five grand for like three hours of work. Maybe I should get into that. I can't just do that forever though. So this is a not to take you guys too far inside the game. I just got a text from my wife asking when this is going to be done. So I'm going to go eat dinner. <laughs> I was about right? to, I was about to wrap it up anyway, David. All right, so cool. all right, good. I figured well, after we started going into Philadelphia football, that <laughs> yeah, that we'd exhaust. We're now the Philadelphia topic. Eagles podcast. Yeah, instead of a Philadelphia Phillies one. Philadelphia Eagles and Shondaland. That's that's <laughs> that's where we're at. I'm looking forward to joining you guys on this next chapter. So, oh, so wait, what what did you think of the scandal finale? Oh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Always a pleasure. We'll save that for next time. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. Welcome back. Now it's time for the third half of the show. Before we do the third half of the show, we do housekeeping. This is for all you kids out there, episode 107. For all you kids out there, is the official podcast of your baseball prospectus Mets local site. You can find us on the internet at mets.local.baseballprospectus.com or on the mothership at baseballprospectus.com. podcast is on iTunes. Just search for For All You Kids Out There. You can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and view the podcast. If you want to get in contact with the show, we're on Twitter at For All You Kids. Jared's on Twitter at J.A. Seidler. I'm on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. We have a Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash for all you kids out there. And you can email the show at all you kids at baseballperspectus.com. And Jarrett, apparently we also now have podcast merchandise. Um, well, we don't, but... Um, There's podcast merchandise available. If you go to, was it shopkeithernandos.com? Yeah, it's like keithernandos.com, yeah. Um... You can buy a very nice uh, t-shirt of Keith's silhouette saying for all you kids um, out there. And, you know, I, I would fully support supporting uh, yep. Keith Hernandez. He's uh, also got a memoir coming out, which has gotten pretty good early reviews. But it's a nice shirt, too. It's a nice shirt. Um, if, if we were going to make an actual podcast it shirt, like it would look probably pretty much like this. So Except, just pretend uh, yeah. it is and give the money to Keith. And, you know, <sighs> he came up with the saying anyway. So. We do a couple of emails. Know. First one's from Andrew. Two questions. We'll take them in order. What are your thoughts on Juan Soto's start in low and high A? As of today... In 124 plate appearances, he has 7 doubles, 4 triples, 10 home runs, 22 walks, and 16 strikeouts, 18% and 13% rates, respectively. 
across the two levels. Is this yet another NLE super prospect not on the Mets? Yes. Uh, so, seventeen midseason top fifty, yeah. which was like in one of the five minutes last year when he wasn't hurt. Yes, was we ranked as the twelfth best prospect in baseball. Yes. We ranked him one spot ahead of Vladimir Guerrero. If he was healthy last season, he would have been one of the top three prospects in baseball. Yes. We're fucking idiots and focus too much on the fact that he wasn't healthy and dropped him back down to what was, quote, an aggressive but reasonable spot when we should, should have still just put him in the top ten. Yes. And we regret that greatly. Yes. All of those things are true. Um, and, you know, it's a matter of you can't do that based on how you construct prospect rankings. And that's something that internally we're kind of talking about. Well, why can't we do that? And you might see some more aggressive, you know, you might see some more aggressive rankings from us moving forward. Is that all fair? Yes. Um, If we, if we were doing a May prospect ranking, he would be in the top top three to five prospects in baseball. I think that's pretty safe to say. Two, remember in 2015, when Harvey suggested he would abide by his innings cap. The next day, cameras caught an exchange between Wright and Harvey in the dugout, where Wright appeared to be giving him a long lecture about being a team player. Isn't it interesting to reflect back on that, given that both players are essentially not major leaguers anymore, less than three years later? Should Mets fans be more sympathetic to Harvey, given all that transpired in his six years with the team? Um... So there's like a tiny part of me that understands sure. the not being sympathetic to Harvey. Because let's just face it, Harvey was a pretty big asshole a lot sure. of the time. Yeah. He was an asshole directly to fans sometimes. Um, but lots of these guys are. I, I I'm not gonna... if you have no if you have no sympathy for this guy, you're probably a sociopath. Sure. <laughs> you know. Or you don't understand. Yeah, fair enough. Like you don't understand what happened here, and that's it's very possible not understand what happened here if you're not following it closely. Yeah, it's just uh, I don't know the sort of I think not even not understanding. I think the media noise around it is like actively distracting from what actually happened. Yeah. I mean... And, you know, the Dark Knight stuff was a media creation more than anything else. It was right on the cover of the Eye. So he named himself yeah. that, though. Yeah. And that's part of it. You know, he named himself that, and he branded it, and he did all of that. And that's... You know, he wanted to be a New York brand. Mm-hmm. You know, we we we've mentioned this name before, both on this episode and previously. He essentially wanted to be Henrik Lundqvist. Yeah. Um. And he really wanted to be Derek Jeter, <laughs> but you know, I don't think he had the right personality to be Derek Jeter, and he certainly didn't have a compliant enough media to be Derek Jeter. But, you know, this is a guy that was at the absolute top of his profession and got torn down by horrible injuries, repeated horrible injuries. 
and appears to be completely unwilling, unable to cope with the reality of what his physical situation is now. And that's got to really suck. It, it's just, it's got to really suck for him. We also have an email from Johnny. I come to you guys in need of your guidance. My business partner, who's also one of my best friends and a San Francisco Giants fan, got me a Brooklyn Cyclones Jose Reyes bobblehead for my birthday. You know I always loved Jose back in the day and wasn't aware of the domestic violence or the overload of terrible play for the past year and change. He is currently residing next to my TV. I assume that's his bobblehead, not the business partner. But that just doesn't feel right. Both as a feminist and a superstitious, pessimistic, lifetime Mets fan. Is there something I can do here to make the baseball gods happy? I ask you both, what do I do with Jose? Um, display it only when your friends come when your friend comes over. So I got a Jairus Familia All Star jersey shortly after that All Star game in San Diego. I remember when you did. And you know it's really cool. I don't think I even actually ever actually wore it because it's not really a. I think I may have worn it to a City Field game once. But yeah, I have I, the Cespedes version of the same jersey, which yeah, is it's a. Uh, it's on the floor of my closet right now, and I just don't know really what to... I mean, mostly because I'm a mess, not because I'm, like, angrily threw it off a hanger or something. And I don't really know what I've, you know, danced... Like, what do you... Just give it to Goodwill? I don't know, like... I suggested perhaps watching it on eBay and donating the proceeds to, like, Rain or somewhere like that. That feels weird, too, though. Yeah. In its, like, own way. Yeah, and there's, you know, I've also heard people suggest that there's a difference between Familia and Reyes. Sure. Um, You know, the Familia situation was less clear-cut, I think. Who knows, is the, like... You know, it was... The Familia situation seemed to be more of a threatening situation than an active violent situation, whereas Reyes chokes on his wife through a glass door. Into a glass door, people get angry when you say through, Jarrett. You know, Familia maybe just threatened his wife with a knife. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't see a great difference there, but some people do. I've heard that argument made. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it's not... You know... You know, these aren't necessarily the easiest. You know, I have a Mike Tyson's, like, punch-out collage. I don't display it in my home. But I also haven't gotten rid of it. You know, and obviously I'm aware of what Mike Tyson is. I think that's probably kind of a similar... Yeah, there's Nike. I don't know, this is... Um, yeah, I think if you're that uncomfortable with it, your friend would probably understand why. Yeah, I don't like... The easy thing to do is probably just bring it out when he comes over, right? The, uh, you know, sort of like white elephant in-law's wedding gift strategy or whatever. Yeah, you know, like I have, like, 
I have like you know cousins that got me a sweater for Christmas. <laughs> Ma- magically, I'll like wear that sweater when I'm going over their house or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um. Yeah. I don't know it's it's kind of these aren't easy questions to answer. I mean, I have a Jose Reyes jersey somewhere. I have worn it probably since 2011. I'm sure it's still in a box somewhere. It's probably like in a box in my storage unit. Um, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, we can be more helpful, Johnny. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, that, that's a, that's a, I don't think there's a wrong answer there. Yeah. You know, obviously, if you don't feel comfortable and don't want it in your bobblehead collection, just, like, get, like stick it in a drawer or something. Um, I'm not necessarily blaming you for the bad juju, but, you know. <laughs> it's just poor roster construction. Just, I wouldn't just, worry about it. <laughs> just, just consider it. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to talk about wrestling briefly. Yeah. Um, so New Japan had wrestling Dontaku the three shows last week. Um, Naito won the Intercontinental title back, and they got jumped by Chris Jericho, who not surprisingly worked the wrestling media again. <laughs> the thing, the thing that amazes me is that he's unwilling to work Dave Meltzer. Yeah. So, like, he'll work everybody else and lie to everybody else, but then when Dave texts him, it's just like, he gave me a non-committal answer, which, you know what that means? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, it sounds like he's wrestling, they're going to do that match at Dominion and not at the Cap House. That's not officially announced yet. There might be a thing there where WWE doesn't want Jericho to work a New Japan show in the United States. I wouldn't be surprised if that's... A sure. thing. Um, Vince seems very willing to not fight New Japan that hard, but that may be a thing where they don't want to push it too far. Um, you know, Jericho has Vince's and WWE's blessing to do these dates with New Japan while still occasionally working for WWE. Um, Okada beat Tanahashi to set the IWGP title defense record. He's now made 12 defenses of the title. In Japan, they tend to focus more on title defenses than actual length of day length of reign. Hmm. Um, I thought this was a match of the year so far. I know a lot of people didn't think it was quite that great. There's a lot of very heavy psychology playing on their previous eight matches. Yeah. Um, none of which are actually all that recent. So if you're somebody that started watching New Japan in 2016, you would just think this is a really good match, but not understand, like, you know, like they're doing callbacks to spots from 2012 matches. And a lot of people started watching New Japan after the Okada Tanahashi feud. Um, that basically carried the company for, you know, about early 2012 through about, uh, basically through the January 4th, 16 show. Um, 
it was kind of like the Tanahashi's last stand sort of match. In a lot of ways, it was like, this is going to be a weird comparison. It was the match that Shawn Michaels and Ric Flair were trying to do in Ric Flair's retirement match, if that makes any sense. Okay. Like, it was like the desperate last stand of, like, the fading ace who's just completely outgunned by the current guy. Uh, and, you know, gets, like, a couple of strong near falls at the end or a couple of strong sign spots at the end. Mm-hmm. But eventually it's, like, Okada's needed to, like, spam, like, eight Rainmakers to put down, like, Omega and needed, like, four to put down Saber. Yeah. He only needed one to put down this version of Tanahashi. Mm-hmm. When he finally actually hit it, it was over. Um... It seems, you know, I don't want to say this outright. It seems like Tanahashi is being moved down into like the Togi Makabe, Satoshi Kojima kind of role. Sure. Nagata. And he might just not be able to go anymore. And those guys are being moved even further down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he might be taking over the role Nagata's had for like the last five years or so. Um. Yeah, I mean, he's really beaten up, and he's not young. And how old is Tanahashi? Tanahashi is 41, and that's a really old 41. Yeah. That's a lot of my... I mean, he's been... Jeez, yeah. He's been on... ...matches... And taking two weeks off for six month injuries, and you know he can still have this match with Okada, and I'm sure he's going to have a couple of really great matches in G1, but he can't do it every time out anymore. Yeah, you know, and this is what Okada's going to be in ten years too, probably. Um. So Okada's wrestling Omega in June in a best two out of three falls no time limit final decision match. Um, at Dominion, which is the one year anniversary of their sixty minute time limit draw. Uh, they've got one advantage going into this match, even though it's probably going to be a 90-minute two-out-of-three-falls match, which should be a huge disadvantage. The advantage is that Omega's a face now, so they can work... Okada Okada actually works best as a subtle heel. Yeah. So they have that dynamic now, which they didn't... They kind of had it in the G1 match a little bit, but the way the G1 match was worked was so completely different. Like, they worked a straight-out 25-minute sprint in that match. Um... They're going to go out to have the best match of all time. I'm sure that's the plan. And, you know, if you go out to have the best match of all time and you miss, it still might be a five star match with those two guys. Sure. You know, like, they're going to come up with all kinds of crazy stuff. For the sixth time in the Sokata title reign, I think this is probably the title change. Yeah. It just feels like it's the title change. But, you know, 
from New Japan's perspective, their business is continually rising. Yeah. The guys like Naito and Omega don't appear to need the title but be draws. And if they have Okada run off a four-year title run with 25 defenses, they could, like, really establish him as, like, the greatest guy of all time and then still have him for another 10 years on top after that. And whoever finally does knock him off is going to be huge. Right. So I, I do see that as a possibility. You can argue they've already done that. Mm. They, you know, what's how far do you need to go to do that? Is holding the title for two years straight and having you know eight Dave Meltzer five star <laughs> above matches and you know ultimately beating everybody with your move in the company that means anything? Is that enough? I don't know. That's it's an interesting booking call. In Gato, we trust, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, for for all, you know, you can complain. There are occasional complaints about New Japan booking that I think are quite valid. On the whole, you've got to, you know, Gato started booking the heavyweights in 2011. Yeah. As a seven-year booking run, this is like one of the greatest booking runs of all time. At what point, as what point does he go into the uh, Meltzer Hall of Fame as a booker? Probably, you know, probably pretty soon here. Yeah. Um, you kind of want to see how it ends, sure. but... You know, that's established a lot of new stars. Took a company that was near death and, you know, really turned it around. And it's really turned around mostly in the booking and the star making. It's not like, and these were like constructed guys. Sure. Okada was a fucking nobody, you know. Omega was a second tier junior star and a fourth coming up, coming in out of a fourth tier promotion, basically. Yeah. You know, Naido was a failed, basically a failed push. Mm-hmm. Um. So you know, I, the, the shows were general. There was also a really good Kushida Will Osprey match. Bone Soldier is back, but it's not the same Bone Soldier. It's right. Ishimura, um, who I'm very familiar with. Right, who's not actually like wrestling. He's not like they're not pretending that Taiji Ishimura is Bone Soldier. Yeah. It was a swerve, basically. To, Bring Taiji Ishimura in as the top, you know, Bullet Club junior heel. I wonder what that means for Marty Skrull. Mm. Um, move Marty Skrull up. He's big enough to work with the sure. Joyets. Um, he is, once again, the number one contender for the Ring of Honor title, so I wonder if that title is going on him and they kind of want to take him out of the junior title mix in Japan so they don't have to keep beating him as the Ring of Honor champion. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, the Naito-Suzuki match was not as good as you'd think. Mm. That's a weird style clash. Yeah. basically what happened. And... Uh, WWE backlash is ongoing as we we watch this. They did have Daniel Bryan tap out Big Cass, but then had Big Cass try and get his heat back after the match. But, of course, you know, yeah, whatever. 
Uh, so it's like, at least they didn't just beat, at least Big Cass didn't beat him with this move, because that could have happened. Um, I don't know, I just, you know, like I said, this was a half hour away from me and I didn't go. Yeah. It just doesn't, you know, they, they put a lot into promoting that greatest Royal Rumble and... It just feels like an episode of Raw or SmackDown. As, you know, the 17 pay-per-views a year generally do now, or whatever number it is. Carmella just beat Charlotte clean with, I don't even know what. She, like, kicked her in the knee and rolled her up. It was, uh, great. Good use of Asuka's first loss. I, I mean... Between the greatest Royal Rumble stuff and putting these two titles on Carmella and Nia Jax, they've set the women's evolution like eight years backwards in like the last month, basically. And I like Carmella as a character, but sure. Carmella just can't work this kind of match. And so I guess Charlotte and Mr. Moonsault came to a standing stop and grabbed her knee. Oh, yeah, whatever. And then they had Carmella super kick her in the knee and roll her up. They love those uh, injury yeah. angle finishes. Match looked like it sucked. Sure. Um, well, I will. Uh, I will leave you to watch the rest of this terrible pay for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, the last two matches are Samoa Joe and Roman Reigns and Nakamura and AJ in an ODQ match. So hopefully, it'll pick up a little bit here. I'm sure we'll talk about it next week on another edition. But for all you kids out there, It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at Midi understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And Midi can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.